part of what we saw last year, I think, was that we were all living in a really difficult environment. And that, that made it hard going to the grocery store. It made it hard going to school. It made work hard. And when we had time away from those stresses and we got to go into the mountains, um, it made making decisions in avalanche terrain difficult. Hello, everyone. Shanti here. Welcome to another episode of the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Today, we continue our winter safety series deep dive. It's no secret that last winter was one of the deadliest avalanche seasons in modern history. Over the 2020-2021 season, 37 people died in avalanches in the U.S. From California to Colorado, New Mexico to New Hampshire, no area was immune from tragedy. Now, was it the weather? Or was it a COVID effect? Well, here to go over why last season proved so fatal and what lessons we can learn from it is Ethan Green, director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. This winter, like every winter, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, or CAIC, asks that you always read the avalanche forecast before you head out into the backcountry. And before we get to Mary and Abby's conversation with Ethan, I just wanted to let you know that you can always get the Avalanche forecast right in Gaia GPS. A premium subscription unlocks access to all of Gaia's maps, including their suite of winter safety maps, which include Avalanche forecast, slope angle shading, and hourly snowtail weather reports right in the app. And right now, for Out and Back podcast listeners, you can get a special 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership by going to GaiaGPS.com podcast. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S dot com slash podcast to get a special 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership. But heads up, that only runs until the end of 2021, so make sure to act quickly. And now, here's Mary and Abby with Ethan Green. Hey, Ethan, welcome to the show. Hi, Mary. Thanks for inviting me. Um, where are you right now, Ethan? Where do you live? I live in uh, Leadville, Colorado, and so I'm uh, sitting here in my office at about 10,100 feet, and it's snowing right now, but typically I'd be staring out at uh, Mount Elbert and Mount Massive, which are mm. uh, two of the highest peaks in uh, the Sawatch Range and in all of Colorado. Very familiar with that area. I spend almost every weekend up there in the summer. That's magical place. Yeah, it's a it's a really good central place for me um, working in Colorado and uh, working with a group of people that are tasked with covering the, the entire state. Nice, Ethan. Uh, so where do you work? So I work for the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Um, we're part of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources, and um, our group is tasked with reducing the impact of avalanches on the people in Colorado and the economy of the state. So we cover all the backcountry areas throughout Colorado, which is uh, over 50,000 square miles of terrain. And then we partner with the Colorado Department of Transportation to run an avalanche safety program for the state transportation system, all the state and federal highways, which is 32 stretches of road and 422 avalanche paths. Then what, what's your role at the Colorado Avalanche Information Center? Well, I'm the director of the program. So that means that I do... Uh, 
a little bit of everything and uh, try to stay out of uh, people's way that are doing most of the work. <laughs> most of the work. So are you still involved in avalanche forecasting yourself? Yeah, yeah, I am. I typically don't work any forecast shifts on a good year. Mostly what I do is the support. So that's, you know, guiding the program and, uh, you know, everything from the forecasting program to kind of organizational issues. And that, that does involve boots on the ground quite a bit, although um, those roles that I do, like which boots I'm wearing can change quite a bit. I'm, I'm curious if you can give us, if it's not too much time, a little overview into what forecasting looks like. Like, what does that boots on the ground work look like? Well, uh, avalanche forecasting can actually look fairly different depending on, you know, what's going on and, and what your application is. For for us at the Avalanche Information Center in Colorado, our primary applications are backcountry recreation and public safety. And then the other is is transportation. So the, the common things between those two applications is that we are collecting data from the field. So that's identifying kind of what areas we have the most uncertainty in the systems that produce avalanches um, going out uh, to try to target that type of information and collect it. That could be looking for avalanches. It could be digging snow pits and looking at different weak layers, the property of those weak layers, the distribution of them, you know, things like that. Uh, it could be uh, doing something behind a, a desk, uh, working on computers, looking at modeling, uh, looking at weather forecasting, something a little bit more scientific uh, like that. Um, we also do uh, a fair amount of training, both of the general public. Uh, the general public, we really focus on kind of school-age kids and then avalanche professionals, which uh, those groups have more in common than you, than you might think. And um, <laughs> then we do a lot of training of um, highway maintenance workers because we work very closely with the Department of Transportation. And so, um, we work side by side with those folks. And so we train them on the things that uh, we want them to know and do around avalanches. And they train us on the things that they want us to know and do about highway maintenance work and staying safe on the highway. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the transportation aspect, but that's huge. Yeah, it's uh, it's tremendously important. Closures on I-70 in the wintertime uh, have a million dollars an hour uh, impact on the economy. And uh, wow. that estimates from uh, 1995. So you can imagine what it might be right now. That's wild. Ethan, I've been looking at your resume and it seems like you've been at this game for a long time. Tell us how you got started in it. Yeah, it's really the only job I've ever had, quite frankly. I came to uh, to this line of work really through recreation, like a lot of folks do. I, I grew up in Colorado. My family spent a lot of time in the mountains, skiing, climbing, backpacking. Uh, so I was really interested in, in all those activities from a very young age. After high school, I, I said I was never going to go to college um, and went to Telluride to, to ski and, and climb. And there I, I got really interested in avalanche safety, had some really good mentors down there teaching me about these topics and decided that I wanted to try to learn more about them from a, a scientific perspective. Ended up going to college to try to study avalanches. And then over the course of, you know, I don't know, 15 years or something, uh, kind of bounced back and forth between operations and academia, working as a ski patroller, getting degrees in meteorology, working as a forecaster uh, for the Forest Service, 
continuing to study heat and mass transfer in snow, and then eventually getting this job at the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. I feel like you've worked in a lot of different regions in the Mountain West. Where all have you been involved in forecasting? Really, mostly just in the central part of the United States. So Montana, Utah, and, and Colorado. Uh, those are the primary places that uh, I've worked as an avalanche professional. I love how you said you were never going to go to college and then you just landed with your doctorate, just magically fell in your lap. <laughs> well, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite that simple, but but yeah, certainly I... Uh, I didn't intend to to take a route like this. You know, I think I've been really fortunate just by being able to follow what I love and I'm passionate about, which is the mountains and especially snow, and been able to to figure out how to make a living uh, at doing that. And I've been very fortunate, both work and academically, that I've been able to kind of mm-hmm. bounce back and forth and follow what I was interested in and yeah, and turn it into some sort of living. What was your dissertation? Tell us. Uh, <laughs> Will we even understand it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was made fun of in a in a, a newspaper at one point for the title of my dissertation. So I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have to tell us what it was. <laughs> uh, it was on heat mass transfer in, in snow. So it was, uh, let's see, the thermal and microphysical properties of uh, kinetic growth metamorphism snow around an artificial ice layer. So really, I was looking at faceting around crusts. So how... Oh how weak layers form around crusts in the snowpack. And what was the conclusion? Oh, it was actually quite interesting, if I do say so myself. But really, we we were able to, to document um, when you have this uh, this unidirectional flow of, of heat and mass. So, you know, just what we have in the snowpack in, in the mountains of, of all the United States and, and Canada, where the, the ground is warm and the air is cold, you've got the snow in between, so you're driving... Um, moisture and mass from the from the ground up through the snow uh, that's causing the crystals to grow uh, down into the snowpack and that's if that's happening very quickly if that crystal growth rate is fast you get facets or tg snow or kinetic snow or or depth hoard depending on what you want to call it and when that's happening around an ice lens we tend to see a, a lot of growth on the bottom of that ice lens as the water mass moves up and we tend to see a lot of erosion on the top so you get this space with really large uh, facets right above uh, the ice layer, and that happens just through the natural processes that we're seeing uh, where you're inserting this large density change into this system that we see happen all the time everywhere in uh, in the snowpack. Uh, it didn't explain everything, but it helped explain uh, some of what we see in terms of avalanche formation where we get these really persistent uh, avalanche problems where we have facets growing around uh, ice layers in the snowpack or, or crusts. And so that's kind of something you see mostly in intermountain regions, right? Colorado, Utah, Montana, places away from the coast. Is yeah. there an explanation for that? Well, you can see it in, in all different places, but you know, the those persistent weak layers are more of a problem, more often a problem in some of those intermountain and continental snow climates. So it's not to say that you don't see them in the coastal ranges, but a lot of times the coastal ranges, uh, you can get conditions that would heal those weaknesses or they would become less pronounced. Um, again, that's that's just a general rule of thumb. But yeah, these types of layers are are pretty uh, common in um, intermountain and continental snowpacks. And and really the the impetus for for my dissertation came from two different winters working for the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center out of Salt Lake, 
where we had uh, a very thin ice layer formed by uh, rime events. So those are events where you have uh, supercooled water droplets um, that form, that impact the snow and, and form a, a crust, a very thin um, ice layer. And one year that turned into um, a weak layer that plagued us producing really large avalanches. It, it formed in early January and those avalanches continued to run um, with every loading event that we saw into April. Um, so we'd see these like peaks of, uh, we get a bunch of, bunch of snow and we see really big avalanches on that layer and then it would quiet down. We wouldn't see it for another three weeks and then it would happen again all the way through the winter. And then the next year we saw a very similar layer form uh, really almost on the same day in early January. And um, it bonded up into something hard and solid and we never saw avalanches on it. And so this dissertation that you wrote, do you use it every day in your real life job? It, uh, it's a really great uh, paperweight. It, it holds large <laughs> stacks of papers onto my desk. <laughs> That's awesome. You say that, but I feel like later in this conversation, it will come up again when we're talking about the conditions that prime avalanches later in the season. Well, you know, a lot of what we do with, with avalanche forecasting is we're not as good at, say, like running computer models and predicting um, a particular event like we would with like uh, weather forecasting. Um, but we do know a lot about how avalanches form and how avalanche cycles progress. Um, and as forecasters, we're really at this state in the science where understanding conceptually how things work so that you can take pieces of information and sort of put them into the, the time and space continuums that we think about these processes happening is really helpful and really useful. And so that's where that kind of information helps. Just understanding how those processes work and being able to, to, to take data that we collect throughout the year and be like, hey, like we're seeing something that, that is similar to this stage of this particular process and being able to understand that, um, look at some of the data that we do collect like through automated weather stations or maybe some of the computer modeling and see how that it can potentially vary through the mountains of Colorado affecting different mountain ranges differently or different uh, elevations or different aspects of slopes. That conceptual idea of how the snow uh, progresses through time and space, that's what's really important. And so every piece of information that we have, you know, my dissertation is a very small, uh, a very small contribution to that. But all of the information that we get about like how cracks form in the snowpack, um, how weak layers form, um, how that changes through time and space. Understanding that conceptually is really what is the most useful. Before we get to how avalanches form, let's reverse it and talk about statistics for okay. a second. And so does CAIC keep statistics on avalanche accidents? Yeah, so the, the Avalanche Information Center in Colorado is the houses the national database on avalanche fatalities. So we keep a lot of statistics on what's happening in Colorado, and um, we also keep the, the database of fatal avalanche accidents for the whole United States. And that's really just because um, this group started doing that uh, before there were all the other avalanche centers in the country. And uh, we've just uh, maintained that data set over the years, uh, even though it's, uh, it's a little bit out of our purview at this point. And so just looking back on last year, the 2020 and 2021 ski season, how did that shape up to be as far as avalanche fatalities go in the bigger picture? 
Well, it was uh, it was one of the worst that we've seen in, in quite some time. Um, when we're talking about avalanche accidents in the United States, we typically uh, look at 1950 forward and 1950 looking backward. And that's because the, the worst avalanche accidents in our country and the most number of people killed, all of those accidents happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And they're really primarily industrial accidents uh, around mining um, operations, logging operations, some transportation stuff. It was really when people were spreading across the United States and, and into the Western mountains, um, building towns and, and building uh, businesses and industrial operations. So how people interacted with the terrain and the snowpack and eventually avalanches uh, was really focused around that kind of industrial uh, application. From 1950 on, um, almost all of the avalanche accidents we see involve some sort of recreation. And so we, we look at those two periods very differently just because of the human aspects of them. So looking at that modern kind of recreational piece, 1950 to today, last year was the worst year that we've had the most number of people killed in the United States since 1950. And what, what was that number? Uh, that was 37 people. 37 people lost their lives. And do we have a breakdown on whether they were inbounds, out of bounds, skiing, snowshoeing, et cetera? Yeah, we do track a lot of that information. So last year of that 37, they were all backcountry accidents, which means that we didn't have any fatal avalanche accidents in operating ski areas. 17 of those were people that were skiing. We had five snowboarders nine snowmobilers, five people that we would classify as, as uh, hikers. That could be a climber, a snowshoer, or somebody actually hiking on foot. And then we have one person listed as other, and I don't know what that activity is off the top of my head. Do you have any demographic statistics, especially related to expertise and in going into the backcountry? We do have some of that information for Colorado. We don't have it for the United States. How about for Colorado then? So for, for Colorado, we do look at education levels and we do look at experience. One of the things that is really important to think about when we talk about experience is, is experience in what? We see a lot of people that are experienced in their sport. So they have, if they're a skier, they have a lot of experience skiing. If they're a snowmobiler, they're, they're many, many years uh, riding a machine, um, but they may not have nearly as much experience in avalanches. So, and that's pretty common. I mean, if you just think about, you know, your trajectory or all of us, just sort of naturally what people will do, like most people don't wake up in the morning and decide they want to become an avalanche expert. They see a ski movie, they watch somebody carve across the hillside on a snowmobile, and they're like, that's what I want to go do. And they spend a lot of time learning how to do that sport. They become really good at that sport. And along the way, they realize that in order to keep pursuing the, their recreational goals, they need to understand about avalanche safety. And so we see this, uh, this trajectory in terms of gaining experience in, in travel mode and gaining experience in avalanche uh, safety are, are often quite out of phase. And so if, when you're looking at demographics and experience, most of the people that we see getting caught in avalanches and killed are pretty good at their sport. They're advanced, they're experts, but they may have very limited experience in avalanches. And when you're looking at last year on the fatalities, it really kind of spanned the entire United States from New Hampshire to Utah. Almost every state had a fatality last year. 
Yeah, it did cover a large part of the of the country. I think if you teased into it a little bit more, um, you know, you'd see sort of this kind of central and northern concentrations. Um, but it, it did. It covered a large part of the, the country and of the states that often have avalanche fatalities. Um, they all had a really significant uh, amounts of accidents. And so is that unusual? I mean, would it be typically just one area over another that would be having a bad year for conditions? It really depends on the year. We see both. So, you know, we can see certain years where we where there's concentrations of human involvements, maybe maybe or maybe not avalanche deaths, but, but involvements. Um, so, you know, you may see like a storm track that's really focused along the the northern uh, border of the lower 48 and producing a lot of avalanche accidents in that area, whereas like the southern part of the of the country, uh, southern Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico really aren't seeing as much snow and, and not seeing as many accidents. Or you can see things like we saw last year where we end up with features in the snowpack that are producing avalanches that are different but similar across a really large portion of the United States. Um, there, have been, there has been some work really looking at patterns in a fatal avalanche accidents. And one of the things that we see, not all the time, but, but sometimes, is that you'll see them move from west to east across, especially the western United States. And that's when we have some sort of common uh, weak layers or some sort of common problems in the snowpack. They may be different, but they're the same flavor across a, a wide area. And then you have a big storm system that comes through. And of course, those storm systems, they come from the west, impact the Sierra and the Cascades, and then move their way across the rest of uh, the western United States. And uh, with those loading events, as they progress, you'll see people getting caught and sometimes killed in avalanches along those same paths. Can you get into a little bit of those weather patterns from last year? Well, talking about the weather patterns for the whole year is that is a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, some of the things that we saw, and again, this this manifested differently in different places. But in general, we had early season snowpack over a lot of parts of the Western United States. So we had a thin snowpack sitting on the ground in the early season that formed some sort of a weak layer in the snowpack. And then we saw really heavy precip precipitation over large areas, especially in February. And in some places we saw really records being set in terms of snowfall and uh, both in individual events and over the course of February. And so those two things, again, this manifested differently in different parts of the country, but those two features really played out to cause problems in a lot of different places, even though the actual problems they produced were a little bit different. So when you look at this whole scene from last year and you were tasked with maybe putting one thing that you could look back in hindsight and say, this is what went wrong, would that be it? Maybe just the weak snowpack? Is it kind of an unlucky year for weather? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm a meteorologist, so it's hard for me to talk about unlucky weather, really. You know, all weather, <laughs> good weather in, in some regards. It's maybe not the most satisfying conclusion, but I think part of what we saw last year was really this intersection between um, some unusual snowpack conditions and people under stress, all of us living in a stressful environment. 
It makes it hard to sort of take that as a take-home lesson that we can apply moving forward. I think there are some things that we can apply, but but part of what we saw last year, I think, was that um, we were all living in a really difficult environment, and that that made it hard going to the grocery store. It made it hard going to school. It made work hard, and um, when we had time away from those stresses and we got to go into the mountains, um, it made making decisions in avalanche terrain difficult. And unfortunately for all of us, um, when we did have those breaks and we got into the mountains, what we encountered were unusual avalanche conditions. And in Colorado, we put we put it at about a one in 10 a year. So um, not an unprecedented year by any means, but definitely not a year that you see uh, quite commonly. Uh, in other parts of the country, like up in, uh, in Idaho, uh, the Sawtooth Avalanche Center talked about it as maybe more of a one in 30 year. So you can really think about the problems, you know, in order to have avalanche deaths, you need avalanches and you need people. And we had people that were struggling and we had unusually tricky and difficult avalanche conditions. And so what you're saying, though, is COVID actually had an effect on this avalanche season that was so fatal last year. Well, I, I can't quote any really good statistics for you, but... I think it is safe to say that COVID affected all aspects of our lives. And I don't think that there's much evidence to show that it did not have an effect on the avalanche season. You talk about people under stress. Are you referring more to people who every year are getting out into the backcountry? Or do you also think that more people were getting out because of COVID? I know that was a lot of chatter you would hear last year was all, all these people are getting out that don't usually get out. Is there any evidence that's true? There's no hard evidence, but there's plenty of tangential evidence. And this is something that we saw in Colorado really from the, the shutdown moving forward. You, you know, the, the shutdown came in, in March of 2020. We saw trailheads packed full of people. Um, as we moved into the summer, uh, we saw campgrounds where you couldn't get reservations. You saw people, you know, camping and hiking and, and really being interested in the, in the outdoors. We saw that continue into last winter. So one of the wonderful things about backcountry recreation is that it's undefined and unconstrained. We don't know really what the definition of it is. We don't know how many people are uh, participating in it. We certainly don't know if there's more people participating from one year to the next in terms of counting those people and seeing that increase. But I think you would be hard pressed to find somebody who uh, recreates in the Western United States regularly who would say that the level of use went down. And do you have any statistics on what the avalanche danger was? What was the forecast saying on these days where people were caught? I don't have the statistics for last year at my fingertips, but in the United States, most fatal avalanche accidents happen at uh, level three or considerable. Uh, in Colorado, that changes a little bit from place to place. Like I think in Utah, it's a little bit more kind of considerable high. In Colorado, it's a little bit more moderate considerable. But really that, that middle part of the scale is where most people uh, get into trouble. And it makes sense from in some ways in that like when the avalanche danger is low, you can still trigger avalanches and you can still get into trouble. But finding the places where you can get into trouble is hard because there's not that many of them. When you're at high or extreme, 
we have maps flashing, we have social media blaring at you. It's typically snowing really, really hard. The wind is blowing in your face. It is obvious that you need to worry about avalanches. In the middle, at moderate considerable, you've got big powder days with blue skies and no wind. But the potential to trigger avalanches and maybe in a lot of places and potentially very dangerous avalanches. So you've you've got all these things that push you into getting on the steep slopes and trying to recoup uh, all the investment you've had in, in terms of training and, and fitness and, and uh, uh, getting out and, and trying to cover different places. But you also still have some very dangerous conditions. And so balancing that can be pretty hard. I always wondered that. There's just truly less accidents when the danger is rated high. Is that true? Is that because people stay home? It is true in a broad sense. If you start looking at small areas, different parts of the world, you may see something that's a little bit different than that. But over a, a broad scale, uh, yes, we tend to see more fatal avalanche accidents when the avalanche danger is rated in the middle of the scale. And it may be that people are staying home. It may be that people are heeding warnings. It may be that people are going to ski areas where the, there's people working to, to reduce the avalanche danger for them. It, it could be a lot of different things. But uh, you know, certainly in Colorado, we see more avalanche fatalities at moderate and considerable than we do at any other level. And were there any common themes in terms of snowpack conditions among these accidents, anything else that ties them together? Yeah, there's a lot of things that tie them together. And again, like sort of the, the broader area that you look at, the, the looser those connections get. So if you're talking about the whole United States, uh, it's harder to draw some conclusions. And if you're talking about like one of the forecast areas for one of the avalanche centers, so for me, for Colorado, it's a little bit easier. Most of these accidents involved some sort of persistent weak layer. In a lot of places, these were weak layers that were very close to the ground. So what we call a, a basal weak layer. Um, in some places, it was uh, a weak layer that was a little bit higher up in the, in the snowpack, but I think most of the country was dealing with something that was fairly close to the ground. So uh, snow that turns uh, into facets or weak snow as it's sitting on the ground typically in October or November, and uh, last year we had fairly dry conditions across a lot of the United States into December, and then we started loading that snow, that weak snow with uh, with additional uh, layers uh, in January and especially into February, and that caused a lot of problems. Um, one of the other human things that we saw was an increase in the mean number or the mean age of avalanche victims across the United States. We saw that increase um, by 10 years last year compared to the previous 10 years. And in Colorado, we saw it uh, rise by 15 years last year compared to the previous 10. And so wow. what were those average ages? Well, uh, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to look, but essentially um, kind of early, uh, right around 40, I think, for the United States, and then early 50s for, the, for Colorado. Really? That is so interesting. Yeah, Can you got to be careful out there if you're, uh, if you're an old guy. <laughs> yeah, so what do you what do you think attributes to that? Do you have any guesses? Well, I don't know so much about the the whole U.S., um, but we certainly looked at it in, in Colorado, and you know, it's there's always um, 
you, you try to draw the best conclusions that you can. So there's always uh, some points that, that we could argue about. But a lot of what we saw in Colorado were people that were pretty experienced in terms of their sport and the terrain. They were locals. They knew these areas. They had been there before. And they got caught off guard. They went to places that they felt like they knew and were places that they understood the behavior. And they were dealing with a snowpack that was not a every year snowpack. It was a one in 10 year. And things were more sensitive. Um, it was easier to trigger avalanches remotely or from a distance. We saw, especially in February, some really wide propagation of avalanches. So uh, cracks running across really wide portions of the terrain and producing really um, really large avalanches, and that resulted in uh, more deaths than we've seen in quite some time. When it comes to triggering avalanches remotely, is part of the problem that you have one party in one gully and a, another party is a little bit over and they're triggering an avalanche on the other party, or is it within parties? You certainly can have the situation where one party would, would uh, trigger it onto another, but we don't see that that much. Um, there was a really prominent avalanche accident in Utah last year that involved two different parties. So it's not that this doesn't happen. In Colorado, uh, we didn't see that. We saw people triggering avalanches oftentimes on, on lower angle terrain that triggered, out, triggered slopes above them. So we didn't see one group triggering avalanche onto another. Um, again, that, that can and does happen, but it's, it's not happening all the time. Um, more often, we see people that are triggering avalanches onto themselves. Is there anything in the data that ties together common human error in all of last year's accidents? So it, it depends a little bit, again, on like how close, how, how deep into it you want to go. And I think sometimes we tend to look really deeply into these accidents to try to find minutia that, that will help us understand them. And, and occasionally that can be a really useful exercise. More often than not, and, and I think we saw this last year, we're really talking about fairly simple concepts in avalanche safety. You know, understanding the nature of the avalanche problem, understanding where it happens, really looking at the terrain. We were spending a lot of time because of the avalanche problem that we had and because of how sensitive it was, telling people to stay on slopes that were less than 30 degrees. It's not that fun sometimes for a, an expert skier, snowboarder, or snowmobiler to do that. But there are certain years where um, that's really what you need to do. So understanding the, the terrain, understanding the type of avalanche problem, what areas you need to avoid, those were a lot of the things that we needed to do last year that we had a hard time doing. As part of that, you talked about familiar terrain and the pitfalls of feeling comfortable in an area and knowing it, and then the conditions don't meet your expectations. Were, were, were we seeing some of that last year? Yeah, we did see some of that last year. There's one accident in particular. Actually, I guess there's a couple I can think of off the top of my head, but um, you know, really sad accidents. I mean, they're, they're all tragic, but you know, we saw in a couple of accidents where people were trying to avoid the steeper terrain. So they were listening to what we were saying, but they were riding terrain that was connected to something that was pretty steep. So like in one case, there were two men, I think 50 and early 50s, very familiar with this, with this area. They had skied there quite a bit. They were uh, sticking to slopes that were really, you know, right around 30 degrees or, or less but they were in a huge avalanche path. And so the 30 degree slope that they were on 
was connected to a, a really steep, large start zone of a really big avalanche path. And uh, because of the type of conditions that we had in the snowpack, they triggered a, a crack in the in the snow that shot up into that steep area above them and released the whole slope on top of them. We saw another one where uh, a group of skiers was, they were pushing their slope angles a little bit more, but still, you know, what we would often think of as fairly conservative terrain, you know, right in that low 30s range. And at the bottom of it, they dropped into a steep walled gully. So the wall of the gully was, was quite steep, uh, even though what they were riding on was the bottom of the gully, which wasn't that steep. And um, they triggered an avalanche, and because of the conditions in the snowpack, again, it released a huge slope above them, not just the gully wall, but the entire slope uh, up above that gully. And so all that snow came rolling down the hill, piled into the gully, pushed them down the gully, and buried them, you know, 10 to 16 feet deep. Ethan, what are some of the things that people can do to avoid this connected terrain danger? Um, really, it's looking at the terrain and understanding what the consequences of it are, especially given the avalanche conditions of today. So there's certain things that, as someone who's, who's investigated avalanche deaths for a really long time, there's certain things that I just constantly avoid, like gullies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, I'm probably overly conservative about that, but I've just seen too many problems of people getting caught in avalanches where the, the walls of the gully come down on top of them. There's really nowhere for them to go. There's nowhere for the debris to go. So it piles up into something that's, that's really steep. Or, or something that's really deep. But most of the accidents that we just talked about, it's really just a matter of like riding in those areas on a lot of days, on a lot of years is just fine. But you have to be able to recognize when it's not. And if you have trouble doing that, or you feel like the risk of making a wrong decision is too great for you, then really just avoiding those places altogether. You can control the terrain, but you can't control the snowpack. Yeah, on a daily basis, that's true. You can't control what the snowpack is going to be like on an individual day. But you can control what terrain you go into on any individual day. And so, you, you know, I like to tell people, I'm not, uh, you know, my colleagues, we talk to people all the time about avalanche safety. And, you know, we've all been young and, and had uh, really big aspirational goals of doing things in the mountains. I wish that, that my goals were still, as, uh, still as, as grandiose as they were when I was in my early 20s, but they're not. And it's not to say that, that you shouldn't do that stuff, like pursuing those goals. Like, absolutely. If, if that's what you want to do, like, you should pursue that. But you need to look at it like you can't go ski or uh, high mark on that really steep slope tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow's the right day to do it. Maybe not. You need to figure out what, when the right day to go to that place is. And that may be this year. It may not ever happen this year. And last year was one of those years where there was a lot of places where they just weren't good places to go that year at all. And seeing that sort of long game of like, hey, I want to go you know, ride these different places, and I'm willing to be patient this year and stick to low-angle powder turns so that next year, when I do see the right time, I can make the most of it. Let's go back to last year. How early in the year did you know that we had this weak basal layer that was going to lead to really high Abbey risk throughout the whole season? Well, we, we recognized it in early November. 
And, you know, we weren't really sure exactly how it was going to play out, but by mid-November, we were starting to see signs of it. We were hoping that, that it would change its path. <laughs> and by the middle of December, we were starting to put out uh, public service announcements to warn people of the character of this particular snowpack we had that year and that it was something that was probably not going to go away. So we really ramped up our messaging around that sort of mid-December through the first, through New Year's. And then we did it again in a kind of a bigger way in, in February and March. And we, we did things that we had never done before. I mean, some of the kind of public service announcements that we did, we had never done before. By the time we reached the end of February and into March, we, we took out billboard ads. We put up billboard ads around the state. We bought advertising time on the local television stations and, you know, ran television ads. We tried to, we pushed all that stuff on social media uh, with the friends of the CAC through, you know, paid YouTube and Facebook ads. And we just tried to get avalanches in front of every single person we could. I remember seeing all of that content. It was very effective, very, very dire, scary, definitely influenced my decision-making last year. Yeah, it was definitely a time like we had been to too many fatal accidents and we just really wanted to do whatever we could to try to prevent the next one. Going back to those statistics and the number of fatalities last year, were you able to put that in a context of how many people were actually caught in avalanches versus how many died? Yeah, we, we do track that. Um, one of the things to remember with our statistics is that the only number that we know for sure is the number of people that died. And that's because when somebody gets killed, it triggers all these other government processes. The police get involved, they're a coroner, there's, there's official reports. In our society these days, it, it's hard to die without anybody knowing anymore. That's not true about getting injured or caught in an avalanche. And so we track injuries and burials and people caught, but we really just, we can only document the information that comes to us. And that's usually through reports. Sometimes we'll hear about something and we'll reach out and talk to somebody. But we certainly know that there's people that are getting involved in in avalanches that we don't know about. We just don't know how many that is. So like for last year in Colorado, we documented, uh, there's 12 people that died and there's 94 people that we documented getting caught in avalanches. Over the last 10 years in Colorado, we see in general about 12% of the people that get caught in avalanches get injured, and about 10% of the people that get caught in avalanches get buried with their head under the snow, either, either partially or fully. And then 8% of the people that get caught in avalanches die. Do avalanches tend to happen during a specific month? Is a particular month in the season more dangerous than others? We tend to see the most deaths in, depending on where you are in the country, somewhere in that January, February, March time period. February is a really bad month in, in Colorado. That doesn't mean that those are the only, that's the only months where you can get caught in an avalanche. Through the United States, we've seen people get killed in avalanches in every month of the year. And in Colorado, we see accidents every month of the year, although definitely not every year. We, we tend to see things concentrated. Um, it used to be sort of November through March. Now it's maybe a little bit more January through April. Why do you think that shift is occurring? We're not seeing as much snow in the fall. 
we oftentimes don't see uh, a lot of snow in Colorado until the end of November and uh, beginning of the December. We used to see more avalanche accidents, and I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but we used to see more accidents sort of in November and early November, and, and we still do, but, but not as many. You know, like this year is, is kind of a good example. We do have snow on the ground right now. We've had snow on the ground really since about the second week of October, and we've started to see some avalanche accidents. We, we had a couple people get caught in an avalanche, I guess about 10 days ago now. They're not the only ones. But these are times when there's not that many places where you can get involved in an avalanche in Colorado. The places where you can get, where you can trigger an avalanche are the really the only places you can ski. So if what you're trying to do is ski, you're attracted to those, those places that are the most dangerous. The avalanches that, that you trigger right now in the state are typically pretty small. So your chance of getting killed, you're more likely to get injured by getting drugged through the rocks or pushed into a tree or something. You're the chances of actually getting buried in a slide are smaller. That certainly doesn't mean that you can't get killed from trauma in the avalanche, but again, your chances of getting buried are just a little bit lower. As we're coming into the season here, Ethan, what what is the best possible scenario for the snowpack? What are we hoping for this year? Well, this year, unfortunately, the best possible scenario is already left. Man, uh, <laughs> this is a buzzkill right here. Okay. It doesn't mean that it won't be a great year, but... but uh, uh, but the best possible scenario is uh, is crossed off the list. Well, what if that looked like? So for us, what we want to see is what causes us problems is when we have uh, a thin snowpack that sits around in the early season. Uh, and it sounds terrible coming from somebody who loves to ski, but what I want to see is that it doesn't snow, doesn't snow in the fall, in the early parts of the fall. And when it does start to snow, that it keeps snowing and we build a snowpack, a thick snowpack pretty quickly. For us in Colorado, that typically means that we don't see a lot of snow on the ground until right around Thanksgiving. And if that happens, we have a chance that we will see a continued snowfall into December and sort of get through that, get over the hump of that thin snowpack period very quickly and move from dry ground into a deep snowpack that's not forming these, these bad weak layers very quickly. When we see snow in October and early November, it's possible that we'll get into a weather pattern where that just builds into something thick and deep right away. But again, it's just not that likely. The chances of us having a week or 10 days of high pressure and clear skies and cold nights, and that's what builds our bad weak layers that not always, but often lead to avalanche problems later on in the year. So we already blew it for this year. Nothing to get too upset about at this point, because it's quite common for us to have a scenario like this. And, you know, I, I, we like to talk about how the avalanche conditions on any particular day in the winter are really the sum of all the weather events leading up to that day and then what's happening that day. What's happened so far, the sum of all the parts so far this winter, it's not great, but there's still lots of opportunities for it to turn around and uh, turn into something that, that is great. And one of the things that is quite wonderful about uh, winter recreation is that there's always places to go and go do something that's fun and exciting. And there's almost always good skiing or riding to do someplace. You just have to find the right place. And sometimes that means staying off the steep slopes. Like last year, we talked about some years that's pushing it and, and getting up into steeper and bigger terrain. And you really just have to think about it from the, the long perspective. Like you want to make sure you have good decisions today so that you have the opportunity to make good decisions again tomorrow. 
So what can people do this year to stay safe in the backcountry? Well, it's really the same things that they can do every year. And that depends a little bit on what your recreational goals are. But from a very broad perspective, the most important thing you can do is check the avalanche forecast. Go to avalanche.org. Look at the avalanche forecast for your area. There's lots of other places that you can get it, like Gaia. Um, you can actually uh, get it in the app. And just know what the conditions are. Know, know what the current conditions are so that you can make good plans that are consistent with today's conditions. In order to make those plans and make those informed decisions, you need to get some training. So get some education. That could be as simple as watching a video online, or there's a lot of good online material, maybe going to an evening awareness talk. If you're gonna spend a lot of time in avalanche terrain and your goal is to ride in avalanche terrain, you really wanna take a course that allows you to spend some time in the field with an instructor, and that's really important. And then lastly, be prepared. That means a lot of things going into the mountains, but from an avalanche perspective, that's make sure everybody in your group has an avalanche rescue transceiver, a pro pole, and a shovel, and that they all know how to use those important rescue devices. Now, you mentioned that people can see the avalanche forecast on your website or in the Gaia GPS app with the avalanche forecast layer. But can people find these avalanche accident reports on your website? Yeah, they absolutely can. At uh, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center website, so for us, that's colorado.gov avalanche. We write reports on every avalanche involvement in Colorado, not just fatal accidents, but every involvement where we have enough information to provide some sort of description and maybe takeaway points to the public. You can find those on the accident section of our website. We also collect reports from all the different avalanche centers because everybody does something similar. Um, it's really best to go to the individual avalanche center. Like if you want something in, in Idaho, you know, go to the Sawtooth Avalanche Center or one of the other avalanche centers and, and get it directly from them. If you're not sure where to go, avalanche.org is the best place to start. And do you recommend that people go through and read some of these reports? Yes, I, I do. Another really good resource is the Snowy Torrents, which is a book set originally put out by the Forest Service and now is uh, being published by the American Avalanche Association, which are collections of, of these accident reports. The ones that we put out and the other avalanche centers put out, we try to do it in a fairly timely manner. We're a little bit slower than, than most groups because we have a very deliberate kind of investigative process, but we try to get stuff out in some information out within less than 24 hours and then a complete report within uh, a week. And so you can see what's happening or how people are getting caught in avalanches this year, and that can help you in this particular year. The Snowy Torrents, those are volumes that are published about a 10-year period, and they're usually published about 10 years after that period. So it, it lets the authors really go through and error check everything, write things clearly, put things in kind of a broader context of, of human involvements. And so that can be really useful just as understanding the patterns of how people are getting involved in, in accidents and, and seeing that kind of cleaner long view, I guess, of, uh, of those trends. Um, there's also a similar effort in, uh, in Canada. The Canadian Avalanche Association publishes, I think it's Avalanche Accidents in Canada. So those are great book volumes to get. Awesome. That sounds like a great Christmas present. Yeah. 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 Certainly, if you know somebody who is um, really trying to, to do more winter recreation and learning about avalanches, it's really good reading. The, the write-ups are typically pretty short. 
um, but they contain a lot of information. It's a really hard book to read cover to cover in one sitting, mm -hmm. but it's a great thing to have sitting around the house and you can pick up and, and read an accident or two at, at your leisure. I know for those of us that work on those, um, you know, reading through all of those gloom and doom um, or writing all of those gloom and doom reports can be really difficult. And so uh, as a reader, I, I definitely encourage people to read them, but take it one step at a time. Don't try to don't try to go through the whole thing in one sitting. Yeah. Maybe read it and eat a bar of chocolate at the same time <laughs> or something. Yeah. And, you know, certainly like, you know, we talked a little bit, Mary, you know, worked as a ski patroller. I did it at times. Like we used to have these books sitting in the, the top shacks of at the lifts so that as you were, you know, sitting around, uh, you know, covering an area, being the, the person at the top of the hill in case somebody got hurt. Uh, you could just, you know, read a little bit of this and and talk about it with the other patrollers if they are around and really try to um, try to learn from these. I, I think one of the important things of reading these accident reports is is not to look through them and say this would never happen to me, but to look through them and try to find the things that are similar to your process or situations that you've been in. Really understanding, you're going to get more out of it if you can think about similar situations you've been or different conversations that you've had that may have had had some relation to this accident. Just looking at it and saying that this would never happen to you may may feel good at the time, but it, it will it will it will inhibit you from learning about those events and avoiding those mistakes. And I know those reports aren't meant to be put out there to scare people, but it definitely has an effect of like learning something from it. What thing can I glean from that that might keep my next tour more safe? Yeah, I think you can always glean something. I mean, you may read some of them and, and they're very different than situations that you've been in, but there's always something in there. And I'll tell you just from the accidents that I've investigated over the years, which is now becoming quite a long list, the, the ones that scare me the most are the ones where... I can really see myself in that situation. I ride the same snowmobile track that that person went through, or I, I walk up the same skin track, and I can see myself along that path making similar decisions. And, and those are the ones that, that really stick with you the most. I mean, if you ski the backcountry enough, everybody's maybe had a close call or a situation that they thought in hindsight, maybe they would do differently. Ethan, have you had any close brushes with avalanches? Yes. Um, yes, I have. <laughs> I think it's hard to work in avalanche safety. I mean, it's a little bit different. Like I, I used to work as a ski patroller, you know, where my job was to really uh, was to set off avalanches and sometimes, um, you know, with ski cutting and things, uh, you know, be very close to them. It's hard to do that job for a long time without having some sort of close call. Being more of a, a backcountry person, I continued to, to have some close calls, but a lot of times you're trying to avoid avalanches more. And I guess the more that you're trying to get close to where avalanches release, just the greater chance you have of of uh, making a mistake, even if it's a small one, or or just being on the wrong side of uh, of a break. So, I think you can spend a lot of time in the backcountry and avoid avalanches, but the more that you want to place yourself on uh, slopes that can avalanche, the greater chance you have of of at some point being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Do you have any personal story you want to share with us? that you can share with us? I, I did a, a hut trip to Canada a few years ago with uh, 
a whole bunch of friends. A big chunk of them were, were people involved in snow science, although not necessarily avalanche science, but, but snow science. But, but one of them was a long-term friend who's worked in avalanche uh, safety and science for a long time. And we had a buried weak layer that we had recognized within about an hour of, of uh, getting out of the helicopter and, and tromping around the, the snow around the hut. And it wasn't terribly reactive. It wasn't producing avalanches right near us, but we saw the, the, the potential for it. And I think we disappointed some of the other people on the hut trip that week because we just kept avoiding places that, where that weak layer was and really didn't want to mess with it. And when we got out later, we, we heard about some really big avalanches that had happened in adjacent uh, areas on that layer. So we ended up feeling good about uh, those decisions, but we made a lot of pretty conservative decisions that week with pressure to move out into to more consequential terrain and just really had to, to think about uh, conceptually what we knew that weak layer was uh, capable of and what level of risk we really felt comfortable with. And for me at, at that point, I think I was in my late forties and I got two kids at home and my level of risk is really different than it was when I was 24. I've had tons and tons of avalanche training over the years, but I still get out there and I'm like, I'm not sure unless it's just bomb proof. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that's something that's really important. I think, I, I think classes help. And I think the training programs we have are really good and they've improved a lot over the years. I think that oftentimes we expect more out of those training courses than they can deliver. And so you, you hear people talk about being certified in a particular level of avalanche training. And what they do is give you a, a framework to gain experience. And so hopefully the, you know, after your first hundred days on the snow, with that structure from a training course early on, um, you'll be able to put all those experiences into context and make the most of them in a lot more successful way than you would be if you were just trying to teach yourself on your own during that first hundred days. But it's, it's really not more than that. It's not that they're going to guarantee you safe passage through the mountains. What they do is, is, is help you learn about the mountains and how to navigate uh, through them yourself. Thanks for your insight, Ethan, and for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Our thanks to everyone at CAIC and Avalanche Centers across the country for the work they do. It's our sincere hope that the 2021-2022 season is one of happy memories and one where we can all come home safely. If you'd like to learn more about CAIC, visit avalanche.state.co.us. Also, don't forget to check out avalanche.org or your local Avalanche Center for info on Avalanche courses and, of course, to check out Avalanche forecasts. And then finally, if you haven't already, make sure to head on over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get that 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. A Gaia GPS premium membership now includes our awesome brand new Gaia winter map and slope angle shading and snow depth layers and avalanche forecast maps and everything else in between. I'm Shanti along with Abby and Mary. Thanks for joining us today and stay safe out there, everyone. And we'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Bye-bye.